Good morning, everyone. All right. Well, how about we open with a word of prayer? By the way, by God's providence, I have a microphone. Otherwise, we'd all be in trouble right now. I don't know what happened to my voice. It wasn't from yelling or screaming from games because it started last the first night. And so we didn't yell. I think it's just my allergies kicked up. That happened to me before when I was in the mountains. So, yeah, I don't know. But forgive me. Hopefully we can bear with me and we'll make it through by God's grace. So let's pray and we'll get into some things. Father God, we, we come before you. We, we give you thanks and we trust your good sovereign work. And we love you, Lord, because you are God. And in Christ, you first loved us. And so I pray, Father, that you would be glorified in the proclamation of your truth in a world that wants to crush your truth, that wants to hide your truth, in a world, in a world that hates your truth. But I pray here that those in this room would be lovers of the truth. So, Lord, I ask for your help now by the power of your spirit in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So the topic I'm covering is gender identity, gender identity. As you already know, unless your head has been in the sand, gender identity, the sexual revolution, is a hot topic, and it's been a hot topic. I mean, for most of my life, especially when I got into high school, it's starting to heighten, and in college, and then now, you're, so I mean, it's, it's heightened, and you see it all around. And this is a big issue, and I want us to think biblically about how we should understand the sexual revolution that is pervading this world. It is everywhere, everywhere. And so we don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be worried about, like, oh, what happens if I come across someone who identifies as uh, non-binary? Or how do I, I don't want you to walk in fear. I just want you to be instructed to know the truth. How do you respond? How do we minister to someone who is caught up in the sexual revolution? And even how do we deal with it with um, those in the church? Because it's not just something that happens outside of the church, that this is something even people, believers, deal with these things. And so how do we do how do we deal with this? Pew, they Pew P W, they do a survey. They did a survey that around two in around two, 2012, there were about 3.5% of people identified as LGBTQ. 3.5% in 2012. It's a small amount, right? Like you'd be an outcast. Like that's how I was essentially growing up. Like if you identified, then you were essentially like the outcast. In 2021, 7.5% identified as LGBTQ, so it doubled. Now, Generation generation Z, which is your generation, 20% identify as LGBTQ. 20%. That's that's a lot. 20% of, of, of people in your generation identify as LGBTQ. So if I put 10 of you up here, two of you, right, would essentially be identifying. So it's, it's growing. It's significant. And it's by no accident. And I really do believe that it's, 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 it is a result of, of obviously deception and sin. But we'll see a lot more that's going on here. So it is very significant. A lot of people, they are embracing the idea of what's called gender dysphoria. Gender dysphoria. Um, what, what does that mean? Essentially means gender dysphoria is the feeling of discomfort because of being in a body that is not in line with your perceived gender. 
So you have this feeling of discomfort. Like, I feel like I am not, my body is, is, is a male gender or is designed to be male, but I don't feel that way. So now I have dysphoria, gender dysphoria, or vice versa. I'm a, I'm a female, but I don't feel like a female. So therefore, now I have gender dysphoria. It's a huge concept that is being planted in the seeds and hearts of many. It has become a common understanding in a part of one's individual de- development to de- determine your sexual identity. So it's even happening in schools now. If you are in like, like public school, like one of the first things you do on the, on the first day of school is, is to ask your name and then give me your pronouns. Like, how do you see yourself? And I, I, although I can maybe visibly tell if you're male or female, but they don't care. How do you identify? Give me your pronoun. Now, you're an outcast, obviously, now, if you don't identify with a letter. Like, it's almost now flipped that if, if you don't have a letter, if you're just heterosexual, like, you're strange. Like, oh, like, that's weird. And it's, it's all about making about what do you feel. And even more, there's laws, bills being proposed in the United States um, that ban uh, for you, for, for example, for me, there are laws that are, that are upcoming in California. They haven't been approved yet, but they're at the assembly. And their laws are saying here that it would be illegal. I could be jailed, imprisoned if someone came to me and said, I'm struggling with my sexual identity and I need help. And if I were to try to use the word of God to simply tell them the truth, I could be imprisoned for that. And it's not only California, but other places. And so it, it's, it wants to embrace the idea that whatever you feel about yourself is ultimate. But I want us to think biblically about these things. We don't have to live in fear. And if I'm honest, from the onset, the church, when I say church, I mean the capital C church, the worldwide church, believers all around the world. The church has done some harmful things with regard to this subject. That the church has hurt people who've struggled with their sexual identity and they've hurt them in the wrong way because they did not administer the word of God in a good way. So I'm not saying that the church has been perfect in this. We're all imperfect. We're all sinners. And I'm not trying to say we walk around this perfectly. But that doesn't mean we just step away and just try to embrace it either. We want to know how should we think about this. So we don't want to come off as superior or judgmental. But at the same time, we just don't want to step blindly into the wave of the sexual revolution and just be lost in the tide just because we're afraid to say something or we don't want to hurt someone's feelings. So we don't want to do either or, either or. So let's start by asking, what's at the heart of the gender or sexual revolution? What is at the heart of the sexual revolution? If we understand what's going on here at the heart, then I'll answer some questions later. But let's first ask, what's at the heart of the sexual revolution? The big thing here is identity. Identity. What do I mean by that? Identity has been the central focus of this whole issue. That they see themselves as primarily a sexual person. That first and foremost, they are a sexual person. Their gender is the most important thing to them. And their identity of who they are is found primarily in their sexual identity, in their gender. So whenever your identity is staked, wherever it is staked, it's going to tell us what is it, what is it about you and what you believe. And so the, the heart of it really stems from identity, because now in that same mindset, the idea is that you discover truth by listening to your heart. 
So if my identity is found in my sexual identity and my gender, then how you need to know, how do you want to know what is true, what is right? Well, listen to your heart. What do you feel? What do you feel? Like, what do you think about yourself? And what you feel is your identity. And you see already from the onset as I'm explaining it, and this is obvious because who has the authority to determine your gender? If I want to determine my brother Craig's gender, who has the authority to determine his gender? Can I do it in this world worldview? No. Who's the only person who can, who can determine his gender? He can. So who has the ultimate authority? We do. Individual. It's, it's given to each person. And so the, you just, if you want truth, just what are you thinking? What do you feel? Your identity is grounded in your feelings. It exalts the gift of sexuality that God gave. Sexuality is not a bad thing in the context of marriage. It's, it's meant to, to be good, what God has gifted. It's, it is a blessing. But now they're taking this, this, this gift of sexuality and they're perverting it and they're distorting it. And they're exalting the fleshly gift here that they took and perverted. They're exalting that into a place that is sinful, but also idolatrous. Because science is pretty clear. Okay, now this is a science test here. If you're male or female, what determines that in a person? How do we know that? Scientifically, yell it out. Chromosomes. So if you're a female, what should be your chromosome? XX. If you're male, what should be your chromosome? XY. All right, good. We're passing science. Right? That's pretty clear. That's objective. That's observable, that's repeatable, that's science, that's a fact. But now in this worldview, there is no objective evidence that shows um, what they would say is that there's no, your, your gender, your sexuality, that it's not about objective evidence, it's all about subjective evidence. So how do you feel, right? Because really, from the outset, there's no genetics. It's not hereditary. It hasn't been proven scientifically that being homosexual, lesbian, binary, whatever you want to call it, is anything in genetics or hereditary. It's not scientifically based. You can't prove it. It has not been proven. They stopped to do it. It's not been proven at all. But now in that world set, in that mindset, is when you view that your feelings are ultimate, then it not only rejects the moral authority. What I mean by moral authority? The moral authority meaning how do we know what is right and wrong? The word of God, right? And so they've obviously rejected the moral authority, but even more, they've rejected biological authority. That truth is rejected. So not only does God say what's right or wrong, who cares about that, they would say, but they say, well, what does science say? What is right and wrong, essentially? And they say, who cares about that? They've rejected moral authority. They've rejected biological authority. It's all being rejected. And who's being lifted up? Your feelings, yourself. So what's at the heart is that they're rejecting all of this. They're taking sinful categories and they're making them ontological, an ontological claim. Now, what do I mean by that? They're taking sinful categories of, this, of these sexual identities and they're making them ontological claims. In other words, an ontological claim means a claim about your being, about who you are. So they are taking these sinful categories and they're now making this sinful category here, but this is now not just what I like or what I tend to or identify, but it's who I am. You see that? Is that there's this here, my orientation or my identity is not just something about me. 
This is who I am. And that's important to see here. Because when you take it from that, you're going to see how it goes down a downward spiral that just leads them to pain and even pain everlasting unless they repent. Now, you would expect the world to accommodate this because if this is how you want to identify yourself, if this is how you want to claim yourself, the world says, go ahead. You know, you need to, to do you right. You need to be about your own desires, what you want. You need to just go after yourself. The world puts a stamp of approval on this, right? But the church should not. We need to be careful about being deceived by this because maybe even some of this room maybe have even heard or understand from friends and you've been just so sympathetic because you see maybe a struggle within them and you're just thinking, well, maybe they are born that way. Maybe they can't help it. And the church cannot be deceived into thinking that these sinful categories are tied to someone's identity that they cannot change. You've got to be careful because that's what the world wants us to think. And the world wants the church to jump on the train of this so that we can essentially echo what they're saying. But go to your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Paul is saying here he's, that the, how God has given the church pastors and teachers for the building up of the church. And he wants the church to be grounded in truth. He wants the church to, to be rooted in truth. But look what he says here in verse 15, verse, verse 14. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by the waves Carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. So what now, he says here, that because we're built and fortified in the truth, we should not be tossed around as by waves going from here to there, backwards, forwards. In other words, he's saying here is that being grounded in the truth, you cannot be waved by every opinion that comes by comes your way, by every truth, quote unquote, that is presented in culture. Be careful because we should not be swayed by it. And why should we be swayed by the opinions in the media, in church, in schools, and even some false churches? Like, why should we be swayed? We should be tossed here and there because we're grounded in the truth. That we have, <clears throat> there's a threat in being, excuse me, I want to take this off of being um, led astray by this, but we need to be grounded in what is true. Now, if someone in this worldview, because of what they've done, let's look at, like, if we kind of look at the pieces, put the pieces together, what the LGBT community has done, they've either removed God completely from the picture, or they've taken a God and they've perverted that God. And so now this God is a God who now approves of me, loves me, that God wants the best for me, or they're completely removing God from the situation. And so when you do this, when you remove God or when you pervert God, then essentially you've created a God that allows and bends to anything that you desire and want. Now, that's not a God anymore. That's a, starts with an I. It's an idol, right? We call it Jesus, but it's not the Jesus of the Bible. And so, but this Jesus is all about love. And so you've taken the truth and perverted it, and now you've crafted your God to bend to your pleasures. So now this God approves of who you are and what you desire. 
So the heart of it stems in an identity, and this identity has been influenced by a false god, and this, ident- this false god has approved of the pleasures and the desires that they have, and so therefore this god now puts a stamp on it. What they have sought to do is, essentially it's gone, they've gone after natural theology. And what do I mean by saying natural theology? Is if we want to understand ourselves, this is, if we want to understand ourselves, it's been said already this week, what must we look at first? we want to understand ourselves, what must you look at first? God, right? In order for you to understand the creation, to understand the creator, you gotta go to, I'm sorry, I don't think I said that right, but if you you as a creation want to understand yourself, you gotta look to the creator, right? Who created you. He is the one who informs your identity. But what natural theology does is it wants to know about self and who God is, and what do they do? How do you understand who God is? Instead of looking at God, I want to look at the creation. So I look at the trees, I look at plants, I look at man, and I, and I, I look at how it's created, and I see, okay, what, this is what was created, and this kind of tells me who God is. Now let me look at myself. Well, I, not everyone feels that they're male or female. Not everyone likes the opposite gender. So that must mean God is not necessarily God who upholds this, this, this standard that's been taught in history and all throughout the Bible. But this now this God must approve of, 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 of someone who is in an opposite gender, someone who is in an opposite body, someone who likes the same sex. Why? Because there are many people who feel that way. So because you feel that way, that must be how God is. You get what I'm saying? That natural theology looks at creation and then understands God by looking at creation instead of looking at who God is. And that's the perverted, upside-down view of what's being done. That because now there are people who now identify differently, who like different things, and who have a different orientation than what's normal, then that must mean who God is. He approves of this. It's just a perverted, upside-down way of looking at things. It's deceitful. But truth starts with the fear of the Lord. Now, if we want to understand how can we understand what truth is, Proverbs 2 teaches that we must look at the fear of the Lord. Go to Proverbs chapter 2. Proverbs chapter 2. I'm going to read it because the time, but this is Solomon speaking to his son who he wants to grow up to be a wise ruler, a successful ruler, and he's giving him instructions for how to live well. And you can just tell the heart of this father towards his son and how he wants him to know truth and what really is, is wisdom, what is true wisdom. He says in verse one, my son, if you will receive my words and treasure my commandments within you. Make your ear attentive to wisdom. Incline your ear to underst- your heart to understanding. For if you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord, for Yahweh, gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He's saying here, my son, if you want to know what is true, if you want true wisdom, then you must search for it and search for it. How do you search for it? You you go to God. 
Go to Yahweh. He is the one who gives understanding. He gives knowledge. And so we must understand here what's at the heart of the sexual revolution is they've rejected this God who gives good wisdom. This God who has a pure morality because he is pure. And when you do that, you have to turn to something else. And what do you turn to when you reject the wisdom that comes from God? You turn to self. You turn to your own feelings and your own desires. And that's what is happening. Our current cultural climate is just a growing picture of Romans chapter 1 verse 22. And this is where Paul says that they are professing to be wise. And that is so true because they're, they're saying that if you really want to know what's right and what's true, what's accepting, then you must think the way we think. That gender is not something archaic that is found in scripture about what, what they've done centuries ago. That's archaic. That's old. They're professing to be wise, right? Aren't they so wise and profound when you talk about these discussions? But look what he says in verse, uh, Romans one twenty two: Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. So professing to be wise, they, they, they thought they were doing the best thing, the most loving thing. They were so wise and so good. This is right. He says they became fools. And what did they do? They exchanged the glory of God for essentially the image of corruptible man or a corruptible uh, creation. So now, instead of submitting to God, they're essentially submitting to creation. So we just have to see here what's going on here in, the, in this thinking. Is that when you remove God or pervert God from this equation, now the creation becomes ultimate. So your creation, your feelings, right, that's ultimate. And so they rejected that, becoming fools, and now have worshipped essentially the created being, which is ultimately themselves. So in order to make room for the sexual revolution, you must reject God's standard because it condemns it completely. Like if you don't reject, if you, if, if you don't, if you do reject God's standard, then that means whatever you believe is now ultimate. But if you don't reject God's standards, if you uphold God's standards, then you realize that my feelings, my desires condemn me. And they don't want to acknowledge that because the rhetoric now in our culture is love is love. Right. You've heard that. Have you not heard that? Love is love. Right. What's the ultimate love, love, love. Right. But let's ask the question, you know, be wise. Right. Don't just believe everything you hear. Even if you hear it from me, from my mouth, don't just believe everything you hear. You got to test it with truth. Test it with chapter and verse. Right. And so the rhetoric around you is love is love. But let's ask the question. How do you define what love is? Like, seriously, stop and think. If someone in this LGBT community, if they are upholding it with perceivably a good, soft heart, then you know what? Just love is love. Love. Like, don't we just want to love each other? Ask, what is love? How are you defining what love is? You with me here? Like, how are you defining what love is? How? And how, what is the response to that? Because what is love? How are they going to say, well, I mean, well, whatever you, what do you feel? Like, how, I mean, people are just born in the wrong body. People just like different, different things, a different orientation. That's, so then who is deciding what love is? Who is defining love? 
Who? Who? Are you guys with me? Good. Yourself, right? And so there is no morality outside of the Bible. That they will say that they have a morality. They will say that they are being good people because they're being loving. But ask the question. Press it. What is love? And how do you define what love is? According to what standard? According to what standard? Because ultimately, if you ask the question, well, you believe this according to what standard? And you, what you're going to see is if you, the, the farther you get down, the standard is themselves. And when you don't have the standard of the objective word of God, you must stand on something to believe something. And that something is going to be ultimately yourself. You are deciding what is true. So this, this, this rhetoric is actually painful because when you put the stamp of approval on this and you say, yes, love is love, what you think is love, it is more painful to approve of someone's sinful lifestyle. It is more painful to say, yes, that's okay if that's what you feel because we want to be loving. It is more painful to do that because you are handing them off to eternal consequences if they do not turn from their way. There is no morality outside of God. Any supposed morality is ultimately man-based. It's what scripture says in 2 Timothy 3.2, that they have become lovers of self. They've become lovers of self. And that's really what the love is about themselves. They become, 2 Timothy 3.4, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. So what happens when God's truth is supplanted, when it's lowered? then something else needs to be elevated, right? When the word of God that is supposed to be ultimate and elevated, when it's not elevated, something else must be elevated. And what's being elevated are desires. But we must understand the design of, of what God has created for man and woman, it is good. Hope you realize that. When God created man and woman, he made it good. Genesis one twenty seven reminds us that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. And in verse 31, it says that God saw all, that all he had made, and behold, it was very good. So if we do rightly elevate God's word, God's standard, then it is good. Man and woman, he made good. That is simple. That's elementary. That is basic. But let's be honest, it's being rejected. It is good, though. So the heart of the sexual revolution is essentially the amplification of self and our desires, and it's the deplatforming of truth, the word of God. Now, they'll respond, even in this, but this is how I feel. This is who I am. This is how I was born. And so how do we respond to that? What do we say to that? We know Theoretically, what's happening, they're, they're essentially standing on the truth of their own feelings, their identity. We know what's going on theologically. But let's think about practically. How do we respond to someone when they say, but this is who I am. It's how I was born. I can't change my, how I feel. I can't change who I like. I can't change how I feel. Like, how do you respond to that? Because, again, I don't, we don't want to come off as just pointing the finger in inferiority. We want to deal with real issues. And this is how many people feel. And this is why they're living this way. Now, let's go to our next question. What is the answer for the gender, the sexual revolution? What is the answer for the gender or sexual revolution? How do we respond to this? 
Now here, hear me on this. This is not only just for LGBTQ issues, but this is really for any sinful issues. Ask the question, when you sin, it may not even be within this context, but when you sin and you know it's wrong, but why do you still sin? You know it's wrong, and yet you still sin. And even if you're a believer and you're struggling with sin, as we all are, why do you still do it? Why do you still sin? You, you sin because you do what you want. You do what you desire. Now, as believers, we know there's a battle going on between the flesh and the spirit. But who will win that battle? It's, it's, the, it's the, the nature you feed the most. If you feed your flesh, your flesh will win. You feed the spirit, the spirit wins. That's a short answer. But now let's talk about for unbelievers, someone who's saying, this is how I feel. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 3 says that we all lived indulging the desires of our flesh. So why do they, why, why are they saying this is how I feel? This, I'm doing what I feel. This is how I think. This is what I, what I want. It's because, yes, you're going after your desires. You feel that way because your desires are ruling your heart. And if you're not in Christ, you're in the flesh and you're dead in your sin. And so naturally, yes, all of us at one point lived according to our flesh. That before Christ, I did what I want. So why did I keep sinning? Because I desired it. I was dead in my sin. And so why do I, why do they feel that way? It's because you're in your flesh. So what's the answer? We don't, our answer, our first objective is not for them to become heterosexual. Like, I don't want someone who is gay just to be straight. Like, yes, I can, you can throw someone into conversion therapy, which is, is, is not helpful, and they're straight now, but they're still going to hell. They no longer like girls anymore, but now they're still going to hell. Now they, they agree, okay, biology is right, I am a man. You're still going to hell. We don't just want them to be straight. We don't just want them to act in the right gender. What is the true answer? The true answer is the transforming gospel of Jesus Christ. That the only hope for someone who is lost in their feelings, lost in their desires, is for them to be changed by the God who created them. That because those in the bondage of LGBTQ are so tied to their identity, we must reveal the perfection of God's character and how salvation transforms them completely. So don't try to clean yourself up. Don't come to Jesus and just try to start being straight. Don't try to come to Jesus and try to feel the right way. Come to Jesus a filthy mess. Come to him as you are. And he will cleanse you. The answer is not here to just try to act right. But come to Jesus as you are. Look here, the church is made up of ex-sinners. And the reason we can't point our finger down at them is because we need to remember, believers, who we are. But even remember, believer, who you were. Who were you before Christ saved you? You may not have been LGBTQ, but you may have been a liar, a thief, rebellious, hating, gossiper, prideful. 
And that is just as sinful in God's eyes as being homosexual. That this is not like higher sin in that sense. That God despises all sin and the wrath of God was once upon you for your sin. So remember who you are, but remember also who you were. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. speaking here and he gives it straight as Paul always does but chapter 6 verse 9 or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God that's sobering words here the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God so who are these unrighteous do not be do not be deceived he says neither fornicators which is sex before marriage nor idolaters, nor adulterers, that's sex outside of your marriage partner, nor effeminate, that is the effeminate kind of male in the homosexual relationship, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Sobering picture here. It says, don't be deceived. That's no one who is marked by these sins, living in this sinful lifestyle, will inherit the kingdom of God. So as you can see here, homosexuality is just one of the sins listed amongst others. So it's not the chief sin. There is no partiality with God. Sin is sin, right? And all of these sins, no matter what it is, all these sins are just disqualifiers to being in the kingdom of God. So homosexuality, all the LGBTQ issues, these are not just Trump sins. He says, essentially, don't be deceived that any of the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Because look at it in our day now, that the law here has excused the drunkard. Right? It, it's not a, it's not a, uh, you're not violating the law by being drunk. As long as you're drunk in your house, right? You're drunk, that's fine. As long as you're not driving a car, the law says it's okay. So are we going to say it's Okay. No, but the law has already approved of fornication. It's not a sin to have, I mean, it's not against the law to have sex outside of marriage in this, in this country. Are we going to say it's okay? No, because God's word says an idolater, you can be an idolater in America and you can love whatever you want. But are we going to approve of it? No. Now, what if the law says now, okay, you can steal now. You can be a thief. We're, we're no longer going to prosecute the thief. And actually it's coming down the pipeline. But that's a separate discussion where you, if, you're, if you're stealing because you're poor and you need the money, you know, there's, there are people who are more impoverished and they just didn't have the upbringing that you had. They don't have the privilege that you have. So if they're stealing, we need to maybe not prosecute anymore. It's coming down the pipeline. But nevertheless, are we still going to say that's OK to, to, to steal? No, because God's word is still our standard. And the same thing with homosexuality and all these LGBTQ issues. It's not culture, it's God's word, it's, it's God's standards. And so we don't want to point the fingers here, but this is what I want us to see in this. Because he says here that, that none of the unrighteous will inherit the kingdom of God. But look here at the hope here that he, see, he says in verse 11. Look at the hope here. Now such were some of you. 
Stop there. He says, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Swindlers, etc., thieves, all these will not inherit. But look what he says. Such were some of you. But what happened? But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. So what is Paul saying here? Yes, the church is full of ex-homosexuals, ex-thieves, ex-slanders, ex-fornicators, ex-adulterers. The church is full of this. But they were washed. You were cleansed. You were sanctified and justified. The Paul here is not saying here that they're worse than anybody else. That they, they, they should be shamed here because of their sin. But no, we were full of these sins, but we were washed and justified and cleansed. They didn't stay that way. But he says here, because he says, this is how you were. Giving the, He uses a, a tense here saying that this is what you were in the past continuously. But you are now washed. And the but here he uses in verse 11 is the strongest, the strongest in the sense uh, conjunction or but that you can use in the Greek here. The strongest word. This is what you were, but you are washed and cleansed and justified. So what does that tell us with someone who was in, in toils, struggling with their sexual identity, struggling with their gender? What does that tell us? That there's hope. That there's hope. That this is not an unimpossible sin to come out of. Because it is impossible for a swindler to be saved unless God washes them. Unless God cleanses them. And just like any other sins. But he's saying here, the hope here is that you can be washed. Which speaks of just regeneration, the renewal. That you are washed and cleansed. It talks about being sanctified of our new behavior now. That you are made holy inwardly. So that now because of the spirit you can live a new life now. He says you are justified, which has given you a new standing with God, a new standing where he sees you as righteous because of Christ's righteousness. So all of these things, what happened to you, and essentially what happened to now the ex-homosexual, the ex-swindler, the ex-fornicator, the ex-adulterer, what happened to them? They were changed by the transforming gospel that gives hope. So our goal is not just to make someone straight. We don't want them just to agree with our political worldview. We don't want them to agree with just science even. I want them to see that the only hope is the transforming gospel of Jesus. That it's it's no different than any other sin. And because this is true, you have to realize that there is hope for anyone who is entoiled in any sin. Ministering to homosexuality, homosexuals or LGBTQs, it begins by understanding how prone we are to being deceived by our desires. Like if we don't realize how prone we are to being deceived by our own desires, not only in this context, but many others, then we're going to lose. As we mentioned in Ephesians chapter 2, many of us lived according to our own flesh. And because those in the bondage of, of LGBTQ are so tied to their identity, We have to reveal to them that the only hope is to look away from self and look to Jesus who cleanses. Now, I want to answer the question now real quick. How should we approach human sexuality struggles within the church? Within the church. What about maybe believers now who still struggle with same-sex attraction, who still have battles with their own identities? 
Because being Christians, being born again, does not necessarily mean you won't struggle with the sins of your past. Because maybe you came to Christ out of a, a lifestyle in the LGBTQ community. Just because you came to Christ, you're born again, you've been washed, justified, sanctified, does not mean you won't struggle with sins of your past. But how do we do that? The first thing I think we need to remember is 1 Corinthians chapter 10, when Paul is reminding us that he says that no sin, chapter 10, verse um, or man, 13, that no temptation, or you can say no temptation or trial, has overtaken you except which is common to man, and God is faithful and will not allow you to be tempted above beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape so that you will be able to endure it. So Paul here is saying is that there's no temptation, no trial that is not that is uncommon to man. In other words, the, the, the temptation, the lie that we want to believe when we're struggling with sin is that I'm the only one struggling with this. I'm the only one who, who still struggles with same-sex attraction. I'm the only one who's battling with my identity. I'm the only one who's battling with my lust. I'm the only one battling with depression. I'm the only one battling with my sin. I'm just alone. That's the first lie that we normally believe. And you know what that does? That keeps us in the dark. That keeps us by ourselves. Because if I expose it, the people are going to see how weird I am. The people are going to see like, that, that I'm the only one and I'm going to be the black sheep. But that's a lie because this verse says here that there's no temptation. That means every single temptation that you have is not uncommon. And LGBTQ issues are not exempt from this. So with it, when we're dealing with these issues within the church, we first have to realize that these issues are not uncommon. We shouldn't do a witch hunt or make fun of or condemn anyone because of these struggles. That we're all battling in various ways. In the same way, the believers need to also be reminded how we are so prone to giving in and being deceived by our own desires. That when our fleshly desires gain power, how prone are we to being deceived by what I feel and what I think? And yes, I know Jesus and the saving of my sins, but you are still prone to being deceived by your own desires and even homosexual desires. And there's contributing factors within this. We don't have time to get into it, but someone's upbringing and their relationship with their parents that they've had can have an impact on how you view your identity, your gender, and your orientation. It can have severe impact on that. If if you've had early exposure to sex, early exposure to pornography, that can have a tremendous impact on how you view your orientation, how you view your identity. There are many factors, which we don't have time to go into, but all that to say that someone's sins of their past before Christ can have tremendous influence on their battles as a believer. But we have to see the issue here at heart, the heart here, the heart issue for the believer is in ultimately boils down to heart idolatry. Heart idolatry. That every sin essentially comes back down to heart idolatry is what are we worshiping? Will we cave in to my flesh and what I desire? Will that be ultimate in my life? Or will I let Christ reign in my heart? And how do I do that as a believer? If I know Christ and yet I'm struggling with sin, how do I do this? You must realize that the heart, like John Calvin said, is is an idol factory. So your heart, believer, wants to continually manufacture and develop desires above God at all times. And so what you must do, as Romans 8 reminds us, is that you must put to death the desires of your flesh by the Spirit. 
You must put the death, the desires of your flesh by the spirit. And how do you do that? You use the only offensive weapon you have in your arsenal. And that is what? The word of God. The spirit uses the word of God to highlight and to bring to the surface the desires and the struggles of your flesh. And he crucifies them by the truth of God. And so the believer, we need to be renewed in God's character. Those struggling with LGBTQ issues, in a sense, with sexual issues after Christ, need to continually be renewed in God's character, with God's truth, remembering their identity, but also the power to crucify the flesh by the power of the Spirit in their lives. It's a continual battle to renew the mind as believers who are still struggling with sexual sins. more I can say, but I'm just going to leave it here with this, is that if you are struggling with sexual issues, don't be ashamed to talk to your pastor, your parents. Don't be ashamed and as active, because the first thing that's keeping you in the secret, keeping you in the dark, is you feel like you're the only one. You feel like you're weird. You feel like you're just, uh, you don't belong. Don't believe that lie. Talk to your parents. If you have Christian parents, if you don't, talk to your pastor. And you, all the pastors here at this retreat, godly men, and I know they're warmly welcome and minister to you and find someone who can disciple you through that. So don't feel alone. Don't feel hopeless. This is a battle that is not uncommon. That's with any sin. But now I want to leave us here with how should we evangelize now? How should we evangelize the LGBTQ community? So if this is all true, how should we go about evangelizing the LGBTQ community? All the letters, man. How should we go about evangelizing? First thing here is befriend them, befriend them while not becoming like them. Befriend them while not becoming like them. What does this mean? It means to be a real person. Don't be weird, don't be awkward, be a real friend, but don't compromise your faith. Both are possible. Secondly, you should seek to evangelize everyone, LGBTQ or not, for the sake that they would come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. So the purpose in you evangelizing is so they would come to know Jesus. So seek to evangelize for that purpose, that they would come to know Jesus. And how do you do that? Number three, get to know them. Get to know them by asking genuine questions. Be a real person. Tell me about uh, where did you grow up? Do you have any siblings? What's your favorite thing to do? Uh, what, what was where you grew up? Where do you go to school at? What, what do you like? You like school? You, you, you like friends? Like you ask genuine questions. Get to know them. Be a real person. Remember that you are talking to a human soul, a human soul that will live eternally. That this is a real person. So they will live eternally in the presence of God or in the judgment of God. This is a human soul. So treat them genuinely as a person. They're made in the image of God. Ask them questions about who they are, not who they are. Ask them questions about what they believe and why. Also, what do you believe about God? What do you, what do you believe about truth? What, what do you think is truth? And then not just in a judgmental way, but like also, so what do you, what do you think is true? What do you, what do you think? Do you think there is a God? 
And genuinely ask them. You know what happens is when you ask someone questions, they'll tell you. They want to talk to you about what they believe and what they think. Ask genuine questions and get to know them. And then ask permission if you can share with them what you believe. Say, oh, okay, that's you. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, okay. Well, I'll say that's cool. Um, but then, okay, yeah. Okay, ask permission. Can I share with you what I believe? Can I share that with you? Just ask permission. And if they say no, uh, no, I don't want to hear because I, I hear you're a Christian. I don't want to hear. If they say no, then okay, leave it at that. You're not going to purse yourself. Or you're not going to say, oh, well, I'm going to tell you anyway. Ask permission. If they say no, leave it at that. If they say, sure, why not? It's like, okay, well, I do believe there is a God. For me, I, I believe the Bible is true. Now, of course, this requires you for doing some research on your hand beforehand about how do you evangelize, and you need to have specific passages uh, memorized. You need to have some sort of basic equipping of how do you, why do you believe there's a God? Why do you believe it's God's words? So you need to do that homework ahead of time. And if there's a question you don't know, you can always say, I don't know, and come back. But you, yeah, do some basic equipping. But ask permission. And what you want to do is, is you want them to see that the Lord Jesus Christ came to see save sinners. And you were the foremost, that you were a sinner and you believe that God is true, that this is God's word. And you believe that God sent his son to save sinners. And you believe that he died on the cross for sins and that anyone who comes to him in faith will be saved. The goal here is, is you want to at least be able to, as our, our senior pastor, our church, he puts it this way. You want to at least drop the bomb. And what does he mean by that? You want to at least drop the bomb. Essentially, you want to just share the gospel. If, if, they, if they're willing to, to listen to what you believe, if you get an opportunity to share the gospel, then do you not realize and trust that the word of God says that the gospel is the power of God to salvation? So you're not consumed or concerned about trying to change your orientation. If, if they can hear the gospel, then it's God's work, God's spirit to work in them how he wills. And so if you have the opportunity just to share the gospel with them, they can either reject it and that's fine, or they can be thinking about it. You don't know what God's doing in their heart. And so you, you want to share with them. And they may say, okay, but you're a Christian, but in your religion, you know, I, I can't be non-binary in your religion. Oh, you believe that. You believe the Bible. The Bible, the Bible says that I'm condemned to hell because I, I'm gay. You believe that about me? And they're going to be offensive. They're going to sound kind of accusatory towards you. But are you going to fear them? Are you going to fear them? Or are you going to fear God in that moment? But with, with compassion, you say, sure, I mean, um, let's say you, your, your religion believes this. It's like, well, I mean, the Bible teaches that there is a God who made you. And this God said just son to die. Now, look here. I'm a sinner. I'm not saying that I'm any better than you or not. I'm not more smarter than you. But I'm a sinner. I need a Christ. And I didn't try to change myself. But I went to Christ filthy and he changed me. The Bible teaches that you come to Jesus and he changes and he saves. And I'm just I'm just a messenger. I'm just a mailman. I didn't write it. And I do believe it's God's word because it's changed me. And so, yes, I, I believe God's God's word is true. And he says that he came to save sinners. And I was the worst of them. You share the testimony of what God has done in you in justifying you, saving you, and transforming you. And share the gospel so that the same gospel might change them if God so sovereignly allows. Fifthly, if they are, <clears throat> fifth, if they are interested, encourage them to read God's word. 
encourage them to read God's word. And what I always do is I encourage people to read the gospel of John. I say, look here, you may not believe me and I'm not trying to force my, my belief on you. I believe what I believe because I know God's word is true. But if you're curious, and if you have someone who is at least willing to talk to you, encourage them to read the gospel of John. And what I tell people is read the gospel of John. And if you are truly humble in heart, if you are truly humble, come before God and say, um, if you are real, Lord, Reveal yourself to me as I read your word. Tell them, pray that prayer to the Lord and read the gospel of John. And they'll see a picture of Jesus. And if God allows, he will open their eyes to see the glory of Jesus. And he will save whom he will save. But all you're merely doing is that the burden is not upon you to convert someone. The burden upon you is not to, to change someone. You are merely a messenger to give the truth. And if God changes them... That's his prerogative. If he hardens them, that's his prerogative. But you are merely a messenger, a pillar of truth. That they need to see that the greatest joy in life is not by found, is not found by pursuing your own desires. That's not your greatest joy. Your greatest joy in life is not pursuing your own perceived identity. Your greatest joy in life is going to be seen in finding it all in Jesus. They need to see that the greatest desire is going to be found in glorifying God and enjoying him. And lastly, I'm going to say this about pronouns because this is a big hot topic. The question is, should you, <clears throat> should you adhere to pronouns? I'm they. Should I comply with that? When you comply with someone's pronoun, you are essentially approving of a lie. Because you're essentially saying that God did not make two genders, so I can refer to this person as they, as their, like all the ridiculous pronouns are coming up. I am approving of a lie. So when, when instead of using pronouns, use names. Just say, because if someone wants to say, someone's name's Julie, now they want to be called Jack, I'm not going to battle over nicknames because we approve nicknames all the time. I'm not going to make interpretive issues of like, is that a masculine enough nickname? Is that a feminine? No, but I'm not going to approve of a gender that is outside of God's construct of man and female and female. So instead, just use their names. Avoid the pronouns. If you're asked, what's your pronoun? What should you do? The simplest thing to do is to politely decline. And refrain from putting pronouns in your, in your biography, in your email signatures, and don't announce them. If, if you're invited to, to say your pronoun, just say, no, thank you. No, thank you. And if they ask why, just say, it's not a practice I follow. It's not a practice I follow. Like, well, what do you mean? Well, how do I know what to call you? I'm like, oh, well, I'm a male. <laughs> oh, I'm a female. It's not a practice I follow. And yes, they, they, some may, some may, in, in this worldview, right? In this, in this world, in this worldview we live in, like, well, you should be approving of that, right? Like, what, what do you say? I have to comply in that sense, but, but in all seriousness, <clears throat> is you just don't comply. Use the names, and that's not a practice I follow. No, thank you. I am a female. I'm a male. To leave it at that. Now, so sum up. Don't avoid the LGBT community. Be a light through your conduct. Be a light through your speech. Seek to listen. Be a real person. At the same time, don't compromise and share the gospel. Share the truth. That is the only hope in this worldview, is to share the hope. And that's what they need to hear. I was going to end with a testimony of someone who was 
living a lesbian lifestyle and by God's grace transformed her. She's now married, thriving, and ministering to those with the same struggles, but I don't have time to share that. But if you want to, to come talk to me afterwards, but look her up on your own. Her name is Rosario, Rosario Butterfield, and she has a tremendous testimony of someone who was steeped living as a lesbian, has a lesbian lover, and was seeking to actively crush and crush the arguments of Christians in the Bible. And what God did was essentially, I'm giving the Reader's Digest version, is what God did was that she befriended a pastor who didn't condemn her, who didn't try to like belittle her, but simply he befriended her and he, he, she saw the genuineness of his faith that he, when she, she saw him pray, he prayed to a God that was full of justice, who was righteous and holy, but also a God who was full of mercy. She saw that just from him. And then as he befriended her, he, he encouraged her to read the scriptures and she read the scriptures more and more and more as an unbeliever still. And one day, one of her um, lesbian friends came up to her and says, Rosario, this Bible reading is changing you. Concerned. This friend was concerned, like, stop. Like, Rosario, this Bible reading is changing you. And it was. And eventually one day she came to the tip of it and she heard a message and she realized that at the end of it, was she was trying to figure out um, all of obedience of life. She was trying to figure out all of the details of life, sexuality, everything, and then she would submit to who this God is. But she realized when she heard the message of God in John chapter 17 that she doesn't understand anything in life until she first bows the knee to Jesus. And the God opened her eyes to see that she needed to first come to Jesus and bow the knee before Jesus, and then if she can understand truth. And by God's grace, God opened her eyes, and she saw saw the glory of Jesus and she was saved and washed and sanctified and justified and she was saved and delivered, walked away from her relationship and she surrendered to Christ and to this very day she's married to a man transformed by the gospel. How does that happen? It's not because someone persuaded her with their theological or with their political arguments. It's not because someone forced her to be straight and tried to scare her. No, she was transformed because of Jesus. That's what does it. And so we have to remember the power in this discussion. The power alone is in Jesus and Jesus alone. All right. Well, any questions, come, feel free to come talk to me afterwards. Hopefully I'll talk. But um, I'm going to leave it there for right now. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to let you go on your way. Lord God, I, I, I thank you for these students here who desire to honor you, who desire to live for you. And Lord, they're walking into a world that hates your son. But I pray, Lord, that they would love your son so much that they would be strengthened and equipped to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel that saved them. I pray, Lord, that they would be holy as you are holy. And I pray, Lord, that they would not fear man, but they would fear you who changes and delivers. I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.